Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. So I have a, a quick trigger warning before we get started. I'm going to be talking about um, Larry Nasser and his abuse of USA gymnasts in just a minute. Um, I'm not going to go like discussing a bunch of details or go really deep into the story, but I know that for survivors here in the room and for survivors watching online, this could certainly be triggering. Um, and so we always want to make a point to do that anytime we talk about subjects like this at Restore. Uh, so I wanted to lay that out just in case um, if, you're, if you're here or if you're watching online, you need to kind of take a break, um, step out, pause, something like that. Um, I'm going to say a prayer in just a second. Feel free to do it then. Or if you just need a second to kind of um, get your mind in a place where um, you'd be okay to, to hear about this. Again, I'm not going to go really deep into a bunch of details or anything like that, but I did want to let you know that's part of what we're going to be talking about this morning. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump in. God, I thank you for this morning, and, and I thank you for um, this Lord's Prayer that we've been studying, um, this, uh, this thing that you've given us to guide us, not just individually, but communally, as we pursue what it looks like to be the family of God, to live and move in the world in the way you'd have us live and move. Pray that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts um, as we open your scriptures. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So a few weeks ago, um, Allie Raisman, Simone Biles, Michaela Maroney, and Maggie Nichols testified before the Senate on the sexual abuse investigation involving former USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser. Now, more specifically, they actually shared about how the FBI had severely failed them and other survivors by not believing them when they first reported the abuse. That was kind of what this specific hearing was about. These four women showed like unbelievably tremendous courage under extreme pressure. Now, some of them were actually asked how they were able to do what they did, and many of them spoke of being inspired by a woman named Rachel Denhollander. Rachel Denhollander. She was the first woman to publicly accuse Larry Nasser. Rachel was also the last of more than 150 women and girls to confront Nasser in court during his sentencing hearing back in 2018. Her testimony that day, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it remains one of the most powerful speeches I have ever heard. It, it was amazing, and she did not mince words. She described exactly what Nasser did to her and to others. She repeatedly asked the judge to consider, quote, what is a little girl worth? and recommended the maximum sentence allowed by law for Dr. Nasser. 
She named the names of those who knew about the abuse and either did nothing or actively worked to cover it up. She even addressed Nasser directly and told him how much pain he had caused her and the litany of other people that he had abused. But then, Rachel Denhollander said something that stopped me dead in my tracks the first time I heard it, and it still kind of chokes me up to this day. She turned to Larry Nasser, her serial abuser and the abuser of literally hundreds of others, and she said this, In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, and without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that's what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. (laughs) And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Wow. Wow. I've read, um, I've read a bunch of theological explanations and scholarly opinions regarding what forgiveness is, but I think Rachel's is probably my favorite. Jesus extends grace, hope, and mercy where none should be found. He offers forgiveness even when it's undeserved. But what he doesn't do is stand idly by as those who only pretend to seek forgiveness when they get caught continue hurting people without remorse. He doesn't do that. To truly seek forgiveness means repentance. It means acknowledging the truth and working to repair the brokenness you have caused. Anything else is counterfeit. Anything else is fake. And with that understanding of forgiveness, this morning we're going to continue working our way, line by line through the Lord's Prayer, and focus in on the sentence found in Matthew 6, verse 12. It says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If you've been around over the last few weeks, you know that we're in the middle of this series called Part of the Family. And in this series, we're using the Lord's Prayer as our manual for what it means to be a part of God's family. See, God designed the Lord's Prayer to be our guide as we communally pursue the way of Jesus together. So during the first two messages in the series, we talked about how the church is a radically diverse and inclusive family of siblings who have been tasked with bringing little pieces of heaven to earth. And then last week, we talked about one vital way we bring heaven to earth by relying on God for our daily provision. And doing that empowers us to fight against a scarcity mindset by not hoarding resources. You see, when, when we 
only take what we need and we share our extra with others, we quickly find that God has provided more than enough to go around for everyone. Now, if you missed any of those messages, those are online, um, YouTube, Vimeo, they're on the podcast, anything like that. You can catch up if you'd like to. But today, we are talking about another way that we, as the family of God, can be a part of bringing heaven to earth. And that is seeking and extending forgiveness. Seeking and extending forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So I want to ask you, what comes into your mind when you think about forgiveness? When I say that word, when I read that verse, what comes into your mind? Is it a particular person? Someone you know you need to seek forgiveness from, but you just haven't yet? Or someone you need to consider extending forgiveness to? Or maybe it's a relationship, a healthy relationship, that has been defined by forgiveness in the best way. You've sought and extended forgiveness with this person. It's brought a level of intimacy to the relationship that you really cherish. Or maybe it's not a person at all. Maybe when I say forgiveness, you think about an event, a moment in time when you were severely wronged or you severely wronged someone else. And maybe it's so bad that you can't imagine seeking or extending forgiveness. Whether it's a specific relationship or an event or some combination of the two, we all have experiences with forgiveness. It's a universal part of the human experience. It's also a central part of the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Rachel said, it's part of what makes the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, so sweet. But it's also what makes the gospel so scandalous. The persecutor of Christians turned church planter named Paul calls the gospel, quote, offensive in a letter to the early church that we have included in our Bibles today. Now, that verse has often been kind of perverted as license for Christians to be jerks, right? They, they act in like a purposefully offensive way, and they're like, well, I can't help it. The Bible says that the gospel's offensive. I'm sorry. That's not what Paul means, just FYI. That's not it. The gospel is offensive because the God of the universe became a human. This is Jesus Christ. The creator put on flesh and became a part of the creation. It's offensive because he was born to an unmarried, low-class girl from a town no one wanted to be from. It's offensive because God in the flesh grew up working a blue-collar job, surrounded himself with notorious sinners, broke a bunch of religious laws, and then eventually died on a cross. That's why it's offensive. And you see, the cross, that's the most offensive part of all. Because execution on a Roman cross was usually reserved for major criminals or political dissidents. But this time, it had Almighty God nailed to it. That's offensive. That's offensive. But it's also what makes the next part so beautiful. Because you see, death and the grave, it couldn't hold Jesus down. And on the third day, he conquered both and rose again. Through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus transformed death into life and sin into forgiveness. And now the most scandalous part of all, Jesus offers that life and forgiveness to everyone who wants it. That's scandalous. That's offensive. In her book, Searching for Sunday, Rachel Held Evans says, what makes the gospel so offensive isn't who it keeps out but who it lets in. 
It's not who it keeps out. It's who it lets in. Do you know what Jesus' final words were before he died on the cross? As he hung up there before he gave up his spirit, you know the last thing he said? Well, John records them in his account of Jesus' life. He, that's Jesus, said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. In the language Jesus spoke and one the New Testament was written in, it is finished is actually just one word, to telestai. Now notice Jesus didn't say, I am finished, right? Because he certainly wasn't. As I said a moment ago, he would be buried later that night and then rise from the dead a few days later. So he wasn't finished, but it, it was finished. So what does Jesus mean by it? Well, we can learn a lot from this Greek word to telestai. You see, in the time of Jesus, people paid taxes, just like we do today. But unlike our modern tax system here in the U.S., the first century government would simply hand you a bill telling you how much you owe, and then you had to pay it. Quick side note, doesn't that sound great? (laughs) Right? They just tell you, this is how much you owe, and then you pay it. Right now, it feels like, you know, they're like, you just pay whatever you think you owe. And you're like, oh, so you don't know what we owe? And they're like, no, we know. (laughs) We know. And if you get it wrong, you're going to go to jail. So, FYI. Okay, anyway, when, when a bill was paid, when a bill was paid in the ancient world, a receipt would be given with the word tetelestai written across the top of it. We've actually uncovered ancient papyri receipts from as far back as 49 AD with the word tetelestai on it. And that's because this word simply means paid in full. Paid in full. So when Jesus said to to Telestai, it is finished, he was declaring that all of humanity's sin, past, present, and future, had been forgiven, it had been paid for in full. I love how Brian Zahn described it. He says, the cross is where God in Christ absorbs sin and recycles it into forgiveness. Isn't that good? He absorbs all of the sin of the world, past, present, and future, and he recycles it into forgiveness. Like we just sang, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And when we choose to receive that gift of forgiveness and life from Jesus, our debt to sin is paid in full. To Tetelestai is written across the receipt that gets handed to us. See, because of Jesus, Christians live in this permanent state of forgiveness. Every time we pray, forgive us our debts in the Lord's Prayer, we aren't for, for receiving new forgiveness For every new sin we commit. Remember, past, present, future sin has all been paid for in full. Scripture says that God has removed it as far as the east is from the west. So when we pray, forgive us our debts, we are being reminded of the forgiveness that God has already lavished on us. And we're being reminded of our call to lavish it on others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. See, God not only forgives us, he calls and empowers us to forgive others. Paul, the same guy I was talking about earlier, he echoes this command in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So it's clear, right? It's clear that the family of God is designed to be a place where we are constantly seeking and extending forgiveness. But this is where it gets tricky. Because far too often, 
Abusive people have used this command to forgive as a way to manipulate their victims into silence and to continue abusing without ever facing the consequences. Not if you know what I'm talking about. Tragically, some of the worst perpetrators of this have been pastors and church leaders. But the truth is that forgiveness can be weaponized in any relationship. I look out here and I know many of you, and I know many of your stories, and I know that you have experienced times when forgiveness like this has been weaponized against you, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And that's why I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about what it looks like to seek and extend forgiveness in ways that honor God and honor one another. So I want to first talk about seeking forgiveness. When we have sinned against someone else, just saying I'm sorry isn't enough. It's not a a biblical or scriptural, so to speak, way of seeking forgiveness. Because an apology without making amends is really no apology at all. This is why the biblical concept of repentance is so important. You see, repentance means to change your mind and to change your purpose. The Greek word can literally be translated to turn around. So repentance is often depicted as someone walking down a path and then deciding to make a 180-degree turn, a full about face, and then starting to walk in the other direction. Now that means that it's completely possible to be walking down a sinful path, hurt our neighbor, hurt our loved one, pause to say, I'm sorry, and then keep right on walking in the same direction. There is no repentance there. Only an attempt to save face or avoid consequences. See, true repentance is the realization of our failure to do what Jesus said is most important. Love God and love our neighbor as ourself. And once that realization is made and the truth is told, then we make the decision to turn away from our unloving behavior and to make restitution for the pain that was caused by it. So I brought with me this kind of helpful outline of what it looks like biblically to truly seek forgiveness. It starts with realization and then repentance and then restitution and then restoration. Yes, I made them all ours because it's easier to remember and because I sat under alliterative preachers my entire life, my entire childhood. It's a tough habit to break, okay? You can take the kid out of the Southern Baptist Church, but you can't take the Southern Baptist Church out of the kid. It's just it happens. So I want to walk through them with you one by one. Realization. This is when you come to know the truth. You are faced with what you have done. Somebody tells you, hey, this thing that you did, it hurt me. Or somebody else outside of the event looks in and says, hey, I saw how you interacted in this scenario, and it was not okay. But see, realization takes humility. We have to be in a place where we are in humble, listening-oriented relationships with people so that we can hear feedback like that without getting defensive, without pushing away. We can come to the realization of how we have hurt people. That's step one. We tell the truth. Number two, repentance. So this is not just understanding the truth. This is going to the person and telling them this is what happened and I've done wrong and I'm sorry. 
I am going to change my mind about this. I am going to change my purpose about this. I am going to turn around, and I'm going to go a new way. That's repentance. And it's followed by restitution. That is making it right, making amends, taking what was broken and being a part of fixing it, right? Because, see, when sin enters into a relationship, it's not just that some material thing breaks, although that happens a lot. It's also that relationships break, right? So if I steal something from you, you are now without the thing that I stole from you, but we also have brokenness in our relationship. So restitution means making what was stolen whole again, if at all possible, giving it back, working to pay it back, but also fixing the brokenness that exists in the relationship. And that's what leads to the last part, restoration. Now, early in our marriage, I had a bad habit of trying to pressure Amy into restoration before she was ready. I would realize I'd done something wrong, and I would immediately say, do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? And if she said yes, I would assume that everything was restored and back to normal, even if I hadn't done the necessary work. I wanted to go directly from realization to restoration, right? I wanted to skip repentance and restitution because if you've ever done this before, those are the hard ones. (laughs) And guess what? It never went well. It never went well. Because somebody can't be pressured into restoration. Somebody can't commit to restoration of a relationship under pressure without their consent or it's not true restoration at all. We can just give lip service to forgiveness. We can't just give lip service to forgiveness. We have to actually do the work, which leads me to this other important point. When you are seeking forgiveness, you can only control the first three steps on your own. You with me? You can only control those first three steps on your own. You can't restore the relationship by yourself. The person who was wronged has to decide what, when, and how restoration might look for them and if it's going to even work at all. And a restored relationship might still have significant boundaries in it. And that's not just okay, that's good. That's a positive thing. We'll talk a little bit more about boundaries in just a second. So that's seeking forgiveness. Now let's talk about extending forgiveness. Since we just outlined what it looks like to seek forgiveness, you may be thinking that extending forgiveness is just waiting for someone to properly seek it and then granting it. But it's not that simple. The temptation is to withhold forgiveness until someone else has sought it out in the correct way, right? That's that's our instincts. We want to withhold forgiveness until somebody has actually done the work. But I got bad news. That's not what Jesus tells us to do. We are called to forgive others just as we have been forgiven by God. Now, why? Because refusing to forgive someone doesn't just hurt them. It hurts us, too. When you harbor unforgiveness and hate and anger in your heart, it does not just hurt them. It doesn't even, just, it doesn't even primarily hurt them. It primarily hurts you. When we hold on to hate, no matter how justified we might be, no matter how justified we feel, we are only hurting ourselves. One of my favorite Noah Gunderson lyrics says, hatred is a sharp knife held by the blade. 
Hatred is a sharp knife held by the blade. You think that you are going after someone else when you hold on to hatred, but you are really squeezing that blade in your hand and doing damage to you. Now let me be clear again. Forgiving someone who hasn't done the work to seek forgiveness properly does not mean that we pretend nothing happened. It does not mean that we just skip over to the restoration stage. You see, forgive and forget is not a concept that's found in Scripture. Extending forgiveness doesn't automatically mean restoration, okay? Extending forgiveness to someone does not automatically mean restoration because any attempt at restoration without repentance and restitution is really just manipulation, Okay? And it might also mean significant boundaries in the relationship for both your health and theirs. Consistent therapy has helped me with this so much. See, proper boundaries don't hinder healthy relationships. They actually promote them. They allow us to be in relationships in a healthy way. But again, even if someone hasn't done the work of repentance and restitution, forgiveness is still possible. Not only is it possible, it's what we're called to do as Christians. Rachel Denhollander modeled that. She offered forgiveness to Larry Nasser, even though he did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Now, does forgiving him mean that Rachel excuses his actions? Absolutely not. To this day, she is still working tirelessly for justice. Does forgiving him mean that she has a boundaryless relationship with him? Absolutely not. I imagine she would never be around him unless it was in a courtroom or with prison bars between them. But Rachel has offered Larry Nasser her forgiveness because she has experienced the forgiveness of God. Listen, she doesn't need anything from him. She doesn't need anything from him. She has been given everything she needs from God. And that allows her to approach Nasser from a place of fullness, forgiving him as she has been forgiven and releasing any hate toward him that she was tempted to harbor. Jesus also modeled this. He modeled what it looks like to forgive someone who hasn't done the work. See, the cross demonstrates the great lengths to which God is willing to go to forgive humanity. Even as people committed the worst sin imaginable, the murder of God himself, we see Jesus praying for their forgiveness. Even after he was illegally arrested, unjustly tried, wrongly convicted, he was still forgiving. Even as they nailed him to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, does Jesus' forgiveness mean that he condones sinful practices or no longer holds us to a higher standard of living? Absolutely not. Remember, right before this, Jesus was flipping over tables in the temple, calling out corrupt religious leaders for their injustice. Listen, we can extend forgiveness and pursue justice at the same time. We can Extend forgiveness and pursue justice at the same time. Not only can we, we must. This is a central part of what it means to be a part of the family of God. Now, did you know that just a couple of verses later, right after he finishes the Lord's Prayer, Jesus doubles down on the importance of forgiveness. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, 
I don't think this is like a magic formula from Jesus, right? He isn't saying that if we have unforgiven people in our lives, we can't receive the forgiveness from God that he promises to anyone and everyone. We know from the teachings of Jesus, from the testimony of Scripture, that God lavishes his grace and forgiveness without merit or condition. He forgave those who were nailing him to the cross. Jesus said this, though, I think, because he knows that as long as we are harboring hate and unforgiveness in our hearts, we will not experience intimacy in our relationship with God. Refusing to forgive someone else doesn't just hurt them. It hurts us too. And one last thing before we go. Look again at this line from the Lord's Prayer we've been looking at today. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Us, our, we. Those are plural pronouns, right? Now, forgiveness is hard, okay? We were never meant to do it alone. Rachel Denhollander wasn't alone in the courtroom that day. She was surrounded by friends and family and fellow survivors. Her husband, Jacob, sat right next to her, and he was there to give her a hug as soon as she finished her testimony. And even Jesus wasn't alone. As he hung on the cross and prayed for his executioners to be forgiven, his mom Two of his best friends, John and Mary Magdalene, and two other women he was close with all stood next to him as he died. Don't pursue forgiveness and justice alone. Being a part of the family of God means that we show up for our siblings and we allow them to show up for us too. That if we need to extend forgiveness to someone, we don't try to just do it by ourselves. When we're working to seek forgiveness from someone, We bring other people along with us. When we're fighting for justice, we don't do it by ourselves. We are the family of God. We are in this thing together.